You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. Dennis, I've been looking forward to chatting with you. Do you want to know why? No. Because I don't know much about you. But I got some respect for you, and I think Bracken does too. So we kind of want to get to know the man that we don't really know. (laughs) All right. Yeah, no, I know because even – Brack and when we were up in Chicago at High Rocks, we're talking about stuff. He's like, oh, I didn't know you did that. I didn't know, you know, you had this or that or, you know, so. And that, that seems to be the common thread. A lot, everyone does the same OCR podcast circuits. We just do them all. We talk about the same thing. So let's, let's open up with the stuff you don't generally put out there. Let's take you back to when did you pick up running uh, or, or start with whatever first sport you picked up. Take us back to the beginning. Yeah, so I mean, I grew up in Oklahoma, you know, country kid or whatever, in a uh, small town, 300 people. Um, I played ball, ball sports like most kids do, you know, baseball, football, everything. And I was just, any time that we had, you know, got in trouble for losing or got in trouble for this or that and did suicides or anything, I was always fine. Like everybody else would be dying. And the more we did, the better I got, you know. So, like in eighth grade, I, you know, joined the track team. Like I was in PE class and, the uh, the PE teacher at the time was like, you know, the track coach came over and was looking for new people for the team. And so they suggested me to run the distance and just jumped in my first mile and did well. I didn't think I, my first mile that I ever tried out was like 505. And, Come on, as an eighth grader? Yeah. So You're just in 505 kinda, out of the gates. Huh? Were you one of those eighth graders with like a full beard already and all that? No, 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 no. I was tiny. I was, uh, I think when I graduated high school, I was 125, 130. But about the same height, so like five ten. <laughs> I finished up eighth grade, and we raced like twelve times at five thirty two. I got yeah. down to five thirty two by the end of eighth grade, and you just cracked off a five oh five right off the jump. Pretty like, I mean, it was interesting because like I was an eighth grader, so you could run with the high school team then. But the our top guy was like a he was a previous year state champion in the two mile, so he was a senior that year when I was an eighth grader, and we'd go out for runs. And I remember I didn't know any better, so he was doing like a I don't know, seven, eight mile run or whatever. The coach would take us out to the lake and drop us off and make us run back. And I hung with him to like the last two miles and then he just started cranking down the pace and pretty much crushed me. But, um, you know, our, my first meet really was like 5.05. And I got down to 4.32 was my best in school, high school. Um, and I think it was just maturing, you know. Um, yeah. And I never, I, I, even then I didn't take it super serious until maybe my senior year. Um, it's kind of how it is. We don't have cross. Well, we, they do now. But when I went to school, they didn't have cross country there. They didn't have indoor track. It was only outdoor. So, you know, once outdoor was over, I didn't run again probably really until, you know, it was time to you know, play the next sport, you know, which would be football the following season after summer. I never trained in the summer much until like my junior year and then started getting, you know, quite a bit better. And like I said, I got down to 432 and Pretty much that for that side of it, and then I uh, was I did well enough. So you played football and you graduated at one twenty five. Yeah, I I was on a team. Let's not <laughs> let's not go as far as I'm saying I played, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, it, it was one of those things too. Being from Oklahoma, you know, being from the country, you my starting line, our starting line was like over two hundred and thirty pounds average, like big kids, you know. 
farm boys. So, you know, we were second in state uh, my senior year. Uh, we lost by six points in the state championship, but like a lot of our guys went on to like play at OU or Tulsa and some of the bigger schools and stuff. So obviously I wasn't getting no playing time, you know, I was mostly JV, <laughs> but I was a good runner. You know, I was being 125 pounds, you know, it's kind of my thing. So, and I was, I did well enough. Uh, I went to Missouri Southern State College in Joplin, Missouri. It's now university, but uh, ran there for a little bit and then joined the Navy and kind of just drifted along over the last 20 years doing this and that here and there. And <laughs> So before you went to the Navy, what was your college running experience like? I only did one season, um, and then I had some issues with, like, academic uh, eligibility or whatever. So they were going to redshirt me, and then for, like, the indoor, I was just – I didn't want to go to school to learn. I wanted to go to school to run, you know. And so just to sitting out, I was like – I'd always wanted to go in the Navy. I, you know, my dad's uh, buddy growing up was uh, in the Navy, so he's kind of like an uncle to me. So I always said I was going to go at some point, and then – once uh, they said I couldn't run for like a season, I was like, yeah, now's as good as time as any. So went to the Navy and that was pretty much it. Dennis, how, how old are you? I'll be 40 in August. You're 40. Okay. So you're the oldest, you're the oldest guy here. Yeah. A bunch. You're the old man. Did you, um, so back then when you were, did you know like running was sort of going to become your niche or endurance training all the way back then? Or were you taking things one step at a time? And that's something you realized was a, a talent of yours later, later on. I mean, I knew I was good, pretty good at it. I mean, it was just, like I said before, like when we would do suicides or sprints or anything for basketball or football, like, or, you know, conditioning for those sports, I was always out front, like, you know, leaps and bounds just because I, I don't know, I guess I had, I just had good endurance. You know, I grew up on a farm and I grew up, you know, running just, just for fun more than anything, you know, here and there. But again, I didn't take it really serious. And our track coach was also our football coach, which didn't know he didn't know anything about running. So at the mm -hmm. time, and you know, this was in the mid '90s, you know, internet dial-up came out. So you know, my my one of my friends that his dad's pretty wealthy lawyer, he was the first one to get internet. So we would, you know, I would look up training plans and stuff online there when I would go over to his house, and I started kind of coaching the distance team and myself because um, my coach didn't know any different anyway. So kind of where I got into the coaching aspect of it and I've kind of always enjoyed it ever since. As a high schooler, you were basically doing more coaching to your fellow teammates than your coach was. Is that what I'm understanding? For sure. Cause he, I mean, one, like he wasn't, I mean, he was overweight, you know, older, he was in his late sixties then. So he wasn't going to get out there and run with us or anything. And he, the, the most he would do is literally put us all in the back of his truck, take us to the lake and make us run back and maybe drive alongside us and tell us we were being, you know, pussies or whatever. But um, he didn't know anything about structuring it. You know, it was always either, oh, yeah, just go out and run like five miles or just go do a couple like hard 400s. There was no structure. So I started reading more. And, you know, it was about the time that the uh, movie Prefontaine came out and stuff. And um, so obviously I started, you know, I was always a big Prefontaine fan. And, you know, I was always a big geek in terms of like uh, running history um, like Jim Ryan, I looked up like a lot of Jim Ryan training plans and stuff when he was, you know, 355 high school miler and stuff. So it's kind of just where it took off. And, you know, I've over the years just read everything I possibly could and um, started working with friends and other people wanting to get into it and just kind of been doing it the last 20 plus years, I guess. Well, I think that's an interesting thing you, you bring up, like 
going to like, I want to kind of dwell on your high school experience a little bit because I feel like there's such a discrepancy in programs in high school and yours is the classic example. Like my dad was a state champion in cross country in high school and he knew, I mean, he was told to put on his winter boots and go for a run because that would make running without his yeah. winter boots on seem easier and they had no structure. So, so just the variance in like programs forced you to take it upon yourself to like, so you would prescribe like, Hey, today we should do intervals guys. And your coach was like, yeah, just let Dennis tell you what to do. Yeah. Like that's actually how it went back. And could you imagine that at your high school program? No, I can't imagine coaching the high school team. Well, it was interesting too, because like I said, you know, so in bigger States, you guys, uh, you know, know this, but like where I'm at now in Rhode Island, it's just like the state meet. It's just the whole state. So, you know, they do have three different classes, class A, B, and C, um, big school, middle school, small school, but they all compete together at the same meet. Whereas like the bigger states, Oklahoma, Minnesota, whatever, you have class A, 2A, 3A, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. So we were near the smallest. It goes C, B, A, and then all the way up to 6A in Oklahoma. And we were A. Um, so it was just a small school. And most of the good coaches go to the big schools, you know. Um, and then in the small schools, you know, one coach might coach two or three different sports. You know, it's not uncommon for the football coach to coach track most of the time um, in those small schools. Um, rarely do you have a specific track coach. And if you do, they usually want a distance runner, you know. Well, and the purpose of, of sprint programs and jumps and throws in those those districts are to funnel your kids into speed and explosion for football. Absolutely. And especially in like places like Oklahoma, I mean, football is the only thing that matters. I mean, you know, it, it was more glorious to be a bench warmer on the football team than to win a state championship in track. You know, I mean, like no one cared, like <laughs> – you know, mm-hmm. were you um, were you always naturally a a leader, so to speak, or did th- that role find you? And did it start there with your like high school track team? No, yeah, I mean, I guess I kind of always. I don't know if it was a leader in, by intent or just like I would do stupid shit and get people to follow me, or you know, whatever the case was. Like you know, a bunch of us would, a bunch of our friends, my friends when I was growing up. You know, I'd always be the one to instigate things and, you know, they'd follow. And I guess that turned into kind of a leadership role um, when I was, you know, middle school or whatever. Like we had this group. It was called uh, we, we were called WBI, which was the name of our town was Wyandotte. So it was Wyandotte Bureau of Investigation. So like we would like do all these like little covert ops and like, you know, sneak into like, you know, different dad's liquor cabinets and like steal liquor you know, still socks or just whatever shit we could, you know, do just to be stupid, you know, mm-hmm. or we'd break into the school and do stupid stuff, you know, cause all kinds of problems. You know, um, I actually got the school shut down for like a week because I mixed the gas lines and the water lines in chemistry class and um, no one ever found out about that. So hopefully my uh, statues limitations is up now if they hear this. <laughs> Why? Why? Why did you do that? Cause I knew what would happen. I mean, I figured if you pushed all the uh, gas into the water lines or vice versa, that they would end up shutting the school down for a few days until they got fixed. And that's what happened. I don't think I'd know how to do that as a high schooler. I would be, I don't think I'd have the know-how. Well, my dad's like, you know, really mechanically inclined type person and does a lot of crazy stuff too, like rebuilds cars and things like that. But I just grew up watching him do stuff. And we used to make like settling uh, bombs out of those big rubber yellow gloves and uh, fill them up with uh, acetylene and then blow them up. 
So I don't know. I guess I was kind of a little pyro and stuff from the time I was younger. Was academic probation the biggest of your worries or were you into some other stuff as well? As far as what? Like your your issues with, with uh, staying on the straight and narrow in high school and college. <laughs> No, I mean, I just, I, I never got into anything crazy. I mean, I, you know, I never like really got into drugs or anything. I drank, you know, obviously beer and stuff, but I just, I guess I never really would turn down anything that I thought was fun or cool. Um, you know, I was a guy that was going, we have a big, huge water tower that sits at the edge of a big bluff on the lake. It's like maybe 80, 90 feet to the top. And, you know, I was the only one that would jump off it or, you know, even though I almost killed myself the first time I did that it. That was really high. Yeah. And it was really, and it was really stupid looking back. Like, um, it probably should have killed me, but it didn't. Um, I think I fractured some ribs and stuff, but I never actually really technically got checked out, but I was completely, cause I landed right on my back. And what was interesting was it pushed all the pressure, like my chest for like two weeks were just like purple yellow from all the bruising. Cause I think it just took all that pressure and pushed it <laughs> to the front side of my body. And then things like that, just, uh, like I said, always doing daredevil stuff or crazy stuff. And did the Navy break that of you or did it kind of streamline it? Um, no, I got a lot in a lot of trouble in the Navy too. I went to captain's mass three times. I got, uh, what they call asthma. So basically in boot camp, if you, uh, get in trouble or you have any medical issues, they'll set you back several weeks and you'll join another class and come up. And I, that happened to me twice. So what should have took nine weeks to get through boot camp took me like over three months. So you went, so you went on and you, uh, you went to the Navy, right? How long were you with the Navy for? Uh, I was in four years active and then six years inactive. So with reserves and everything, 10 years. And what are you doing with your endurance training at this time? Like, what are you doing as far as your, your fitness goes? So while I was in the Navy, I actually, you know, I was staying running a lot. We, uh, had kind of club teams on each ship or the, the bases that we were stationed at would have club teams. And we'd go on like our uh, cruises, our Mediterranean cruises, you know, which is like six, seven month long. You pull into all different ports and stuff. And when they did that, they'd normally set up, um, basically there's a group called MWR. It's like morale and welfare recreation or something. And they'd put on softball games or, you know, 5K runs and stuff like that. So our club teams would always do those. And, um, we would also have like our PRT, which was like our one and a half mile timed run. And obviously I stay in shape for that, but, um, you know, I continued training all around, you know, when we'd pull in anywhere in uh, Europe or whatever, I'd go out and do my run and my training. Um, I actually made pretty good friends with a Kenyan runner who was quite a bit older than me at the time. He was, you know, he's 50 now. So he was 10 years older than me then. And I was 19 or whatever. And he was almost 30, which was old by my standards. But he was a Kenyan runner, really good, you know, like mid-13 guy for 5K. So we just trained together all the time and, you know, drank beer in the evenings and run in the morning and um, anytime we got a chance. So it's kind of how that continued during, during my Navy career. And then when I got out, I uh, kind of, I mean, I stayed with it. I would always run here and there some years more than others. Um, but then I took a job doing what I'm doing now, but I was doing crazy days like 16 18 hour days sometimes out in the field doing uh surveillance for like the military and stuff and so i put on a lot of weight stopped you know drank more beer ran less miles and got up to like 220 at my heaviest oh wow and then i guess it was probably 2006 i was working out in washington state and there was like a really nice um trailhead by the hotel and i said you know what i'm gonna get back into running so 
went to the store, bought a pair of Nike whatever shoes, and it was when they first had the iPods came out with the little pod in the shoe to track all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I just started putting in miles, and I remember like the, I was going to go, I, I'm going to run three miles hard. My three miles hard ended up being like a 905 or 910 average or something. And I was like, holy shit. Like, I literally can't run a mile. Like, it's taken me two times longer to run a mile than it used to, you know. And so I just kind of lit a spark again to get back into it and um, continue that trend now for the last 13 years, 14 years. I'm curious. So you went from 125-pound scrawny kid. Then you went into the Navy. I'm assuming you beefed up a little bit during that time. And then you came out and you got fat. Fat, fat. Okay. And then if we and then if we fast forward to today, now you're coaching high end level athletes and seem to know what the hell you're doing, right? So so where in there between like I got out of shape and fat, forgot about running to where you're at now, where did that happen? And how did that happen? Well, I never forgot about running in terms of I just didn't do running, but I still like read up about it, you know, studied it as much as, you know, if ever. Um, even more so. And I eventually, you know, my goal was I, I had always wanted to be a high school coach and which I am now, but, um, you know, I just, I get, you know, how I guess things just happen in life and you just decide that fitness isn't the big priority, you know? Mm. And like I said, with my job, it was stressful and it's, it's just excuses really. I mean, it's not like I couldn't have stayed in shape or anything. I just didn't. Um, and then finally I just, like I said, I went out for that three mile run. And I was like, holy shit. You know, I was disgusted in myself literally. And so I just, you know, decided I was going to start getting back into it. But the, when I got out of the Navy, I was probably 160. So I I'd, I'd obviously put on, you know, quite a bit of weight over those several years in the Navy. But then when I got out, I was still in shape. I was running good then. But then I just more or less took off completely. You know, we were working in crazy places internationally. I was in Sri Lanka for like four months. I was in Columbia, South America, like for three years off and on, like two weeks here, two weeks there. Um, basically I'd do two weeks a month, every month for three years. And I just didn't, you know, didn't have the time. I mean, I could have probably made time, but I didn't, you know, get off work and it was more enjoyable to go have a few beers and try to get in some mileage and training, you know? Mm-hmm. Were you married at this time? No, I was, I mean, I was dating my, my wife now, but, uh, we started dating in 2006 and got married in 2012. So we were together. Well, part of it. I mean, I, got out of the Navy in 2002. So, um, yeah. So most of the time we, we, we were together from 2006 to now, obviously. So you got out, you did your first three mile run at nine minute pace and blew up. Was that like, was that day one and you just continued or did you have some setbacks after that? No, that was pretty much it. I continued from there on. Um, and then that was probably early 2009 or 2000. Yeah. 2009, I guess maybe something like that. And I started uh, just, you know, three, five miles every day. Um, you know, I sh- would structure it. You know, some days it would be speed stuff. Some days it would be a little longer, easier efforts and stuff. And then that's when I really got into the heart rate training more than anything and started training a lot more by heart rate and mostly by heart rate. And then we moved down to Virginia um, not too long after. Um, and I joined a running group there. And at this time, I'd gotten my 5K back down to maybe 22 or something minutes, 23. You know, still nothing impressive. But there was an old Navy buddy of mine that was uh, down there, and he was part of the group, and he'd gotten into some pretty good shape. You know, he was running sub-18 for 5K and stuff, and he, he was a big guy. He was like hunter size. 
So we started training more and more. And basically the group at that time only trained for half marathons and marathons. So they convinced me to start training for a marathon. And so I did. And it all came back pretty quick. You know, I think I went from, like I said, in the 23 range when we moved down there to four or five months later, I was back down to mid 17s. Before we moved back up here in 2014, I was sub 16 again, you know, so um, it came back pretty quick. I mean, you know how it is. I mean, it, you just have to get there. I mean, if you have that ability, it stays with you, you know. Not a lot of people go through that, though. You remember that TV show? It was uh, or fit to fat to fit. Yeah, that's kind of what that's kind of what you did. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it wasn't like uh, necessarily planned. I wouldn't necessarily say that just people should plan to do that. But I actually do think it's given me a lot different perspective as a coach. And it's also allowed me to, you know, clients can say, well, they can't say to me like they can to a lot of coaches. Well, you don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like to be out of shape and fat, you know. And mind you, even then when I was fat and out of shape, I was still in better shape than the majority of America, you know, mm -hmm. um, sadly at a nine minute mile pace. When, uh, so what'd your weight do then? I'm just curious. Did that all come down together? That come down pretty quick, your weight and your 5k time? Were they pretty, uh, parallel? Yeah, for sure. I mean, they came down because yeah. once you, you know, start putting in the volume and, uh, I started changing a bit the way I ate, but not really. But when you go from no volume to, you know, 60 miles a week, 70 miles a week, then it starts coming off fairly quick. But yeah. what happened was, and I think what contributed, I, I used to deal with Achilles issues a lot, especially around that time. And I think what happened was having all that extra weight had put so much stress on my Achilles when I first started getting back into it. It took me a while to finally get over that hurdle. And it was not until I started training completely different way and, you know, incorporating the things I do now, like the tire pulling and things like that, and got away from just the strict running, running, running um, to doing a lot more strength work and sled work. And uh, that's when my Achilles finally went away the issue and knock on wood. I haven't had any issues since. Is this about the time you found OCR or is that later down the road? Um, like I said, we moved down to Virginia 2009. And then I think the first race OCR that I did was a local one mid 2011. And then I think the first real one was that superhero scramble that we did where you and I think it was Makita and uh, Blennis was on a team. And then mm -hmm. actually like me and Mick and another guy, um, we were third behind you guys and another team, I remember. So that was like yeah. I think, my first one. Did you know right away that you were onto something with OCR that the type of training, and we'll get to your type of training in a bit, that you had started doing like this was a, a marriage, you know, preordained that this was going to work out? Yeah, I mean, kind of. So like that first, um, so you, you remember David Mick, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that, yeah, so anyways, he... Uh, He'd done a few already and he was in my running group and I was training him to run, um, qualify for Boston Marathon. So he started doing a few of the um, Spartans and he became pretty good friends with David Megiddo and they would travel races a lot and stuff. So then when we were living in Virginia Beach at the time, it was a pretty good central location to travel up or down the coast and, you know, the city field or down to the South Carolina or wherever they had those events then. Um, Wintergreen was only like two hours away from us. So, you know, there was a lot of opportunity to do it in race. And then, yeah, after I did that first one, um, I remember I was running with you guys. I was hanging with you guys on the running, no problem. And then we got to those last gauntlet of obstacles and they just crushed me because I hadn't been doing anything like that. 
so I went to the drawing board and I started figuring out ways to, you know, get stronger and get better at the things that I wasn't good at. And, um, yeah, I mean, it started working out well. And then I started training more athletes that were interested in OCR and started having success myself. My wife was doing pretty well at the time and, um, some of my athletes were doing pretty well. So kind of stuck. Before we get into your, we really do want to talk about kind of your training methods and your philosophy, coaching, and all that because it's. I think you got some interesting concepts that you uh, you have your athletes kind of work through. But I really want to know that transition from like getting into like how did you become you? How did you become the coach? Where did that happen? Was it slow? Was it fast? Like you sound like a self-made man. Like as far as the coaching goes, like you were figuring it out on your own. Nobody was coaching you. Nobody was helping you. Right. So how do you turn that into a coaching business or like taking care of athletes yourself? So, I mean, obviously being, you know, engineering mindset, I'm a pretty analytical guy. So I like to dissect everything down, like, and figure out, and I'm listening to the podcast you guys did with Hunter the other day. It's like, how can you break a race down or how can you break down each element of the race rather than try to do it all and throw it all together and hope it comes out, you know, the best. But mm -hmm. if you break it down to each level, I figured, you know, with being an engineer, I could do that. And I knew enough about obviously fitness and everything else and training and conditioning. And I figured if I could start incorporating some of my um, own methods, which those came by way of kind of not accident, but because I was injured with the, uh, an Achilles issue at the time, I couldn't really run, run. So I would do a lot of uh, rollerblading. Um, I was doing a lot of tire pulling because the tire pulling didn't stress it, but obviously running did. Um, and I was training for Boston Marathon at the time, and I was running with Team Hoyt, which is basically, I don't know if you know about them, but they're, um, it's a group of like disabled um, athletes, rider athletes, and obviously an able body runner pushes them in specialized chair. So one of the, you know, I was part of the Virginia Beach chapter, and a guy used to always push all the time. We're the same age. Um, and his parents said, hey, you know, we, we'd love for our son to take part in Boston. You think you can push him at Boston? I said, yeah, but, you know, I have to qualify. Well, I could qualify at the time myself, which was only a 305 marathon, and I had done that. But Boston Association came to me and said, you have to qualify pushing, right? That was a whole new element at that, at that point, right? So That's kind of crazy. Yeah. Jeez. Now, now, that doesn't, now the charities, like, you can get in, you don't have to. But at the time, like, the first year I did it was 2011. I was the only other person besides Dick and Rick Hoyt who had done Boston pushing. Um, so because I was doing a lot of work, pushing the, um, chair all the time with these rider athletes, most of my races I was doing with them. And, uh, I realized I needed a lot more strength, especially on a course with hills. I mean, if you're pushing 140, 150 pound guy up a hill in a chair, you gotta be a little bit stronger than the normal, you know, typical runner. So I started experimenting a lot with sled work and tire pools and water running and, um, just anything I could get my hands on that I thought would transition well to, to that. Wow. Nothing like a, a 26.2 mile sled push, huh? Yeah. Right. And that's essentially what, I mean, and then at Boston, especially, you know, you got the Hills there and it's a tough course to be pushing, <laughs> you know, somebody it's an equal weight to you, you know, up and down Hills and for 26 miles. So and I did a, I did a hundred mile on the track for charity pushing. And that was pretty crazy. How long did that take? 22 hours. You did a sub 2400 while pushing? So. That's not bad. <laughs> I got to 92. I got to 92 and then my, uh, I could start getting some like 
ankle, like my ankle got so inflamed. I mean, I was switching directions like every couple miles, but I think it was just that much. I mean, 100 miles, 100 miles, no matter how you slice it. But on a track, especially all those turns, like it started beating up my ankles pretty bad. So I pulled the plug at 92. Um, we had an on-site doctor, and he's like, I think you're going to like destroy your tendons if you try to gut out these you know, next couple hours here. But yeah, it was cool. I mean, we, we raised like $60,000, and it was pretty neat. So did you did you start to see this? So basically, this alternative sort of training was to push somebody through a race course. Then did you see that sort of training translate to your own running when you weren't pushing, I'm assuming? For sure. I mean, like it was weird because I, at the time, I was rarely racing like my own races. I was pushing almost every race we were doing. There'd be, you know, 5Ks, 10Ks, half marathons, whatever, down in Virginia Beach area. And I would do them, you know, I would join the team like probably almost every weekend there for about five years pushing. And I started realizing it just started making me a lot faster with my own running. Everything just felt so much easier, obviously, when you go from not pushing someone to running free by yourself. And so I got to thinking, well, if I can apply this the same way to my athletes that I'm coaching, but in a different way, obviously not pushing a chair and push a sled or whatever else. So um, like I said, it came out of necessity one and two, I think I was tired of like getting injured and I knew there had to be a reason why I was getting injured. So in my case, I think it was just, I had, you know, a typical runner. I didn't have the strength that, you know, we need to stay strong and resilient and, um, a hardened body, you know, weak core, all that. So once that started like getting on board, then the running just became, I didn't get necessarily get a whole lot faster at that point, but I could sustain for much longer. And I recovered much better once I started incorporating all the other elements into my training. Did you ever have an aha moment? Like, you're like, oh, like this training is working. Like, did you have an experience where you're like, maybe I'm onto something? Was there a moment for you? Yeah, because I, I got into the tire pull and, and I actually did that a bit when um, even in high school because the uh, ranch I worked on, they trained racehorses and they would train them by having them pull tires and stuff as well. So I started doing that a little bit in high school, but not too crazy. Um, and of course, there's no way you could find any information on it back then. Um, so when I started getting back into it again a few years ago, uh, I just started realizing how much easier it made my running feel like especially after taking off you know you pull the tire for a mile and take it off and run a couple miles it just felt so much easier so i started doing that training up for a marathon my goal was to i was trying to go sub 240 and i would just do like a mile tire pull two miles run at mrp like marathon race pace and i would do that for like 10 rounds or you know something crazy like that like and it just got to the point where that marathon pace started feeling so much easier and i'm like this tire's certainly helping and then of course living in virginia beach there's no mountains or anything so i started realizing that even when we'd go do a mountainous ocr i could climb pretty well um and i started realizing that the tire pulling was most likely what was allowing that to happen yeah i did a i did a workout um i kind of swiped from you from one of your past workouts about a month ago and it just felt i did it in the flat parking lot behind my house and just tire pulling and then sled pushing. And it just felt like going up a 20 or 30 degree incline. Yeah. And that was the first time it really hit me that there's a, there's more of a application to this than I realized. Yeah. And especially, I mean, you, how you do it too. I mean, obviously the, the way you pull it, like yesterday I was doing it myself, 
and I do like exaggerated like um, strides is what I call it. You know, where I'm really like reaching out and like um, doing long strides. And it really, I mean, you can just activate different muscles like that'll activate the hamstrings a lot more. Whereas if you do it up on your toes more, you know, you'll, you know, activate the calves and everything a lot more. So it gets you different, you know, you can prepare for different gradients, so to speak, just by the way you pull the tire. Um, but again, if you don't have access to mountains or even a decent hill, like you guys, neither one of you guys do um, where you live, it's kind of the, you don't have a whole lot of other options. And not to mention, I mean, in terms of OCR, it's more about muscle endurance, not so much just overall power and strength. You know, you see a lot of people and squats and deadlifts are fine, but I mean, you can't go do deadlifts for two hours. You can pull a tire for two hours, you know, and it's going to simulate two hours of uphill climbing, whereas you're not going to be able to get away with that. And it's also all concentric, you know, there's no eccentric, you know, part of it. So you are nowhere near sore or sore at all. You'll be fatigued, you'll be tired, but you just won't have that like soreness that you get like the doms or whatever after a heavy leg day so that you can continue putting in nice volume and nice training without taking away from the running aspect of it. Yeah. Do you know you're the sole reason why I bought myself a chest strap, a harness, and a tire? Do you know that, Dennis? It's funny because the uh, Comcore I work with, we, well, we work with them now. I, I don't, they don't give me any like kickbacks other than for every 10 one of my athletes order, they send me a free one and I'll send it to an athlete or do a raffle with it or whatever. But just since I've started working with them three years ago, we've sold over 200, I mean, 200. <laughs> so I've gotten over 20 like free, you know, harnesses from them because of all the ones that I've been responsible for selling. Yeah. You deserve a little bit of a kickback from that. We want to, we want to dive into your, to your sort of training methods and philosophy and all of that. That's what we're really excited about. So we're kind of leading ourselves into that. Um, I know it's probably hard to do, but if you were to just like give us like an umbrella, like look at like an overview of like your general training philosophy, what would that, what would that be? Uh, it's hard to say, but I mean, and I think Bracken mentioned this the other day on one of the uh, episodes you guys did, but I've never been a big proponent or a fan of like this whole, you know, spend months and months building a base with just the low end aerobic. I've always been more of a, let's, you know, throw as many, you know, nets as we can out there, you know, to try to catch as many fish as we can, where I work on every component simultaneously. And it just would change in terms of application, how much or how little or when in training. Um, so, you know, a lot of people think I'm more of a low mileage type uh, coach, but it's not so much the mileage because um, my athletes probably put in as much volume as a high mileage runner does, but it's different methods. You know I mean? There might be 10 miles of tire pulling during the week for some of my top athletes, which will translate to, you know, that's three hours almost right there, you know? So, whereas if you ran three hours, you would get, you know, some of the top runners would get a marathon in, you know? So, it just doesn't look like high mileage, but it's uh, still fairly high volume. And then I put a lot of element, you know, a lot of focus on the compromise running, like you guys always talk about, um, because as we've seen a million times over in OCR, just being fast alone won't cut it. Um, the minute you start inter introducing any kind of, you know, fatigue in the legs and you break up your rhythm, you know, all of a sudden a 14-minute 5K can be neutralized by a 17-minute 5K pretty easily. Yeah. yeah, and it's the it's the compromise running area that I'm really interested with your program. Uh, we've talked about it a bit before, but 
I find that a lot of people have trouble pairing the skills necessary for OCR and the speed necessary for running together in a program. And I think that you are comfortable thinking outside the box and incorporating them into not just standalone workouts, but like just threaded in throughout the week. And, and that's what I really want to hear about. And, and I think that the, the general public needs to hear from you is how, how your methodology of compromised running looks. So obviously, like, I mean, for a typical OCR athlete, you know, and it depends on the athlete, obviously. Um, some will put in more running mileage than others, um, depending on any past injuries or just what kind of athlete they are. Um, for instance, you know, like Alyssa Hawley or whatever who work, I work with, like, she doesn't have to put in near the, the running mileage that most women do and still be just as good. You know, she's so good with being able to grind and she's an all-around athlete. Um, so it just depends on the athlete. But... Typically, I try to get at least a couple compromised uh, sessions in a week, and that can simply be, uh, you know, a tire pull slash run workout, um, or it would actually uh, involve some sort of exercise like the lunges in there or anything like that, the burpee broad jumps, anything like that that's going to break up the rhythm and obviously, you know, compromise the legs and fatigue the legs enough. Um, but I typically always try to have like at least one easy day, if not two in between harder sessions. So the top athletes will get two or three, you know, one real hard session, usually and then two semi hard, um, which I guess you would be more like your tempo type effort, um, threshold type effort. And then true easy days. Like I have all my athletes trained by heart rate, um, you know, math training. You guys are familiar with that, right? So are you doing true math, like high end aerobic, or are you keeping them lower than that? lower so normally i try to actually because math itself i mean it's just like anything else it's it's not individualized you know if you just simply you know subtract your age you can have huge fluctuations you know i've had um high level athletes who their max heart rate is only maybe 165 and then others who are 215 you know um so clearly if they're the same age the math number is going to be completely drastically different so i normally try to have them do um you know, heart rate trial, max heart rate trial. We're going to interrupt you on a tangent. We uh, talked about different heart rate trials. What's your go-to heart rate trial? Mild time trial. I mean, it's, yeah. I think it captures because it's long enough that it'll get your heart rate near max. And normally what I do is, so whatever the highest an athlete will see is, you know, assuming they're running near their max effort um, and then add 10 beats to that. And that's been pretty consistent that that's about what their max will be. Okay. We'll set that base, you know, maybe they, the highest they see in their mile time trial is 175. Then we'd set the peak at 185 and then, you know, set their zones from there, you know, based on percentages. I like that. All right. Sorry. Continue on. Yeah. So that's pretty much, um, like I said, once we establish the heart rate training, then we can make everything individualized and everything can be specific to that runner or that athlete. But I'm very big about the true easy days being truly easy. Um, and it takes a long time to get an athlete's mind wrapped around that. They, they just don't, you know, as, as much as we all know, and we've all been there, you just don't think it's possible. It's like, how can I possibly get better and get faster by going slower so much? So that was actually a lot of the reason why I started implementing the tire pulling too, because if, if, if a runner is deficient, you know, aerobically deficient, uh, they would have to run super slow to the point where it's just too tough on their ego to slow down to a 10, 11 minute mile for a good runner even. 
I mean, you know, I've got runners that are 18 minute 5Kers who, if they truly are staying in math with running, have to run 10 minute mile pace. So mm -hmm. I started incorporating the tire. Um, and basically, we select the sizes by that. I have them select their size and stay in their math zone, just pulling the tire. So that allows them to get their volume and their mileage in aerobically speaking, but without all the damage from, you know, a muscular or skeletal standpoint with uh, running. And again, it, they don't feel as like restricted if they're, you know, if I tell them to go run in math, they're like, oh, I have to run so slow. And then all of a sudden they upload the workout and they got down into their seven minute mile pace again. And now they're, you know, well above their math zone. So it's always that like zone three that most people spend most of their time in. And I try to cut that completely out and go either on the low end of the spectrum and then the high end of the spectrum and not a whole lot of that chunk mileage, so to speak. Just to be clear, you're talking, these people aren't going out and running with the tire on their recovery days. They're going out and hiking with it. Yeah, I, I, re I rarely uh, program running with it. If I do, it'll be like short sprints, like maybe, you know, 100, 200 meter, pretty much max effort with a tire, take it off, either easy jog between or walk between. Uh, most of it's just fast hiking, power hiking. Right. Incline repeats with it, you know, pulling. I wanted to, um, I wanted to circle back. You said you had you have most of your athletes doing like more than one compromised running workout a week. You said tw maybe twice a week you're having people do compromise type work. How are you setting that up? Are you doing, are you doing all high end work where it's all pain cave stuff? Are you doing low end work as well in a compromised fashion? How do you program that? Yeah, a bit of both. And uh, again, um, you know, like some days are certainly high end um, where it's race type effort, you know, redlining um, really, learning to deal with that, you know, discomfort and pain, because as you guys know, I mean, that's part of it too, is you have to be able to put yourself there mentally quite often in order to really ever get that out of yourself in a race. Um, so we definitely visit that area of the pain cave quite a bit, but I'd say only really maybe once a week for true in like balls to the wall type thing. And then everything else is more, you know, like I said, either the very easy or it would be some sort of threshold type effort where you, the compromise part is the intensive part, but then the follow on. So like, let's say, you know, 15 devil presses or, you know, man makers or something like that, and then run a mile at marathon pace, which isn't crazy fast, but you know, a lot of the running in OCR is around that, like a, a marathon pace, half marathon effort, but it's compromised. So it's, it's going to feel different. It's going to feel probably more like 10 K effort, you know, especially when you're fatigued, and tired. So, um, we do a lot of that. I mean, I, I think marathon pace is like that perfect pace where you can do quite a bit of it without completely like destroying your body and you can recover from it fast. And especially if it's broken up, like with the tire pools or things like that, um, you can put in a pretty considerable amount of volume with good quality without overdoing it. I, I agree. And I, f I feel like if you can get an athlete to the point where they can revert, reset back to marathon pace as a recovery process during a race, that they're now in a position where they can really compete. Where if marathon pace is now your your ground zero of recovery, then, then now the sky's the limit for racing. Well, and you look at that even beyond OCR. I mean, like you look at some of the great like marathon, like Renato Canova or uh, Bill Squires and stuff like, you know, who coached Bill Rogers and all those guys. Um, you know, at the time and even still today, you know, it's, we'll go out and put in long, slow runs 
and not enough people touch at marathon pace. And that's when I joined the group down in Virginia. I started coaching a lot of those runners. The group had been started by just a guy, you know, he was a real estate agent, wanted to run a marathon, but wanted to have someone to join him on his training runs. So he started a meetup group and it grew literally from one person to 1500 in a few years. But when I joined the group, no one really, not too many people in the group was, they, they didn't come from a running background. So they just did marathons. They trained for my guests and then completed them. They never really trained much marathon, true marathon pace and did enough of it. And then once they started realizing like, okay, well, there's something to this. Like I need to know what this feels like in training in order to do it in the race. Then it was night and day different. You know, they, people were dropping 15, 20 minutes off their marathon PRs, like in one training cycle. You know, so mm. same thing with OCR, you know, you gotta, you gotta be able to, like you said, if you can revert back to if marathon pace is easy. So for some like you two, like caliber runners, like you guys, that might be six minute mile, like six flat pace for marathon pace. If that becomes easy, then you're in a good position. Like, yeah. Well, know what I like about, know what I like about that is so reverting back to marathon pace. So basically you're taking your hits through compromise running and at least getting back to marathon pace. And that's the same on the race course. Like if the worst damage you can take and you can come off of a bucket carry, you can come off of an obstacle and your and your worst case scenario is reverting back to marathon pace after you've taken some damage in a race. Like you're doing all right. Your race is going to stay intact. So if you train that system to get out and in at least at marathon pace, that's a that's an all right thing, all right position to put yourself in race time. Well, I think you know, like the the two perfect examples of that is like, you know, Atkins and his wife. You know, Lindsay. I mean, if you look at them, like, you know, Lindsay especially. I mean, in terms of just being a fast runner compared to a lot of these other girls, she's nowhere close. I mean. Like her half marathon, I think it's like 125, 126. And that's decent, but it's not, you know, sub 120 like a lot of the other girls. Um, but she can just continue that effort and that pace for such a long period of time. And it doesn't take as much out of her. Whereas later in the race, she's not getting faster and outrunning the girls. They're just falling off and she's staying steady. And I mean, and it's because of all that compromised running, I'm imagining, um, especially with all the volume they do with their other sports, you know, the skiing and biking and everything else they do. Yeah, that's exactly it for the sport. It's not about what your 5K is. It's what percentage of your 5K can you keep coming back to when you're tired. Exactly. And obviously you have to get your 5K or your 10K or your half marathon fast enough so that you're not dropped in the first mile of the race. But after that point, it becomes a threshold test. Yeah, I mean, a few few years ago, like or two years ago, I guess I was kind of working with Ryan a little bit. So I had him and uh, Lindsay, I asked him to go do some testing in a lab and uh, Peter Dobos, I don't know if you guys know him, but anyways, he's, um, you know, pretty knowledgeable guy in the sport and stuff, but he lives up there near where they do in uh, Ontario. And he was friends with one of the uh, people that ran the labs, one of the doctors there. So they did their testing basically on the treadmill and they were doing it at different inclines. I think it was like flat 7%, 17% and 27% or something. And what was interesting is, they were able to maintain such a high percentage of their VO2 max on at every grade for like such long periods of time. And that's where I think like, you know, you have to get to, like, like you said, it's not how fast you can run. It's how much or how, how big of a percentage you can maintain uh, compared to everybody else around you. So do you think that sled pulling and compromise running is the, the, the best way of getting to that point? Yeah, for sure. But you also have to, I think, put yourself into 
the, the main reason I think like the sled work and all that stuff um, changes everything up for OCR, you know, helps create a better OCR athlete is because the course is always changing in some way or another. Obviously the terrain is different. Every race elevation is different in a flat, fast course. Yeah. You know, maybe as long as you're decent on obstacles, um, you know, a fast 5k would be enough. But then once you transition away from a flat like Jacksonville course to big bear or something like that, then all of a sudden now that 5k really doesn't mean a whole lot unless you're, you know, pretty familiar with the mountain running or you've been doing something else to build those mountain legs. And if you're a flatlander, sled pushing and tire pulling. And um, I'm also a big fan of the kick bike too, which I think is an amazing tool to use. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that or used those. I haven't. So it's essentially like a adult version of a, a razor scooter. Um, but a lot of like um, cross country skiers and stuff use them in, um, you know, the spring and the summer. Um, first time I'd have actually seen one used was, uh, Zuzana was using one in a video or something. So I looked it up and I bought one and I use it a lot with my high school kids and stuff too. Um, but it's awesome. Like, so you can start building power to ground and stuff specifically like each leg, each side. And if you have a power meter, it's even better than you can like measure power output on each side, uh, individually. That's really interesting. Pretty cool. Circling back one little bit, I do want to dive in a little bit techier into one of the things you said. You said you have them revert to marathon pace after a lot of the pulls or on some of your moderate workouts. Are you going marathon pace or are you going marathon effort based off heart rate on that? Uh, Both. Sometimes it depends. Like most of the time I'll usually for my athletes, I would prescribe it as more um, heart rate and, you know, MRP effort. Um, With the goal to bring it down closer to pace over time. Yeah, yeah. And try to bring it down over, you know, closer to pace um, for specifically for marathoners or like runners. I have them stick to the, like the, the pace because they, mm-hmm. they need to run the specific pace. Like, you know, whereas in OCR, the heart rate's kind of probably more important because everything's changing, terrain's changing. So it's more heart rate um, related to OCR, but pure running, I would, I would go by pace more. That makes sense. So then how do you pair, how, how do you calculate out? your marathon pace and your marathon heart rate you do your one mile time trial do you have any other uh, metrics that you use to calculate that so just based on when i was training doing all my uh training stuff for marathons and working with athletes i've i've found that like marathon pace once you do your mile time trial marathon pace for most athletes will be 80 to 85 percent um of max heart rate obviously until further in a race where you have heart rate drift and everything, but in just general shorter efforts at marathon pace, it's 80, 85% usually of around max. And that's typically the number I try to use for my athletes. So then you have them hit a 80 to 85%, whatever number you give them yeah. run and see what their pace equates to. Right. Exactly. How long do you give them to get into that heart rate before they start tracking pace? And like in a specific run, like if they were testing out to find out what their marathon pace was, what would the protocol be for that? So normally, like I said, I mean, I revolve everything around the mile time trial. And then once you mm-hmm. get the mile time trial, you can start putting together like relative training paces. Um, and you, know, you can use like the online calculators and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like I like using the Jack Daniels one. But obviously, so let's say you go out right now and you can crank out a five minute mile. You're not likely going to be able to generate the equivalent marathon without specific mm-hmm. marathon training, but you can do the relative marathon pace work for intervals mm-hmm. and shorter distances and stuff like that. And that's normally 
how I start incorporating and working backwards, basically. So if we know they have a decent mile time trial and they're decent speed, then we want to work on either, you know, speed endurance or extension. And then I usually will go to the marathon and start bringing it back down. Um, and when an athlete's at their best, the closer they can obviously get their marathon pace to, um, mile time trial pace. Like if you look at the elites, like Kip Koji and those guys, they're almost always within like 45 seconds, less than a minute mm -hmm. between their mile best time and their marathon pace, which is pretty incredible. Whereas the average person is probably closer to two minutes difference, you know? So that's how you, that's how you differentiate between slow twitch and fast twitch athletes is you have their predicted time and you have their set in stone heart rate and you just work on bringing them together, whether that's extending speed up or endurance down. Right. Exactly. I like that. So the other day, so this week, um, I've been having some of the athletes do true speed work. You know, most of them, what they think is speed work would be when I do threshold runs or maybe a few fast 400s or something. But, you know, I was having them do like true speed work where it was like, you know, four by 200 all out, like five minute rest, you know, long rest between. And then two by 400, like all out, like 10 minute rest between. And literally I've had about 30 messages the last couple of days, like I can't understand how I'm so sore. Like I, like I, my butt hurts, my hamstrings hurt and everything hurts. And I'm like, true speed work and true sprinting is a big difference than the typical endurance speed work that most people, you know, use the word speed for. Yeah. Rather than recruit the minimal amount and be economical, it's recruit everything. And now you get blown apart the next couple of days. So what was good about that, it was nice to see too. Like, so some of these people that aren't necessarily the greatest endurance um, on, on the endurance side of things, we're putting out some pretty fast 400s, as you would expect, right? Like more of your power athletes, your stronger athletes. Um, but it's nice to be able to see like and show them on paper like, okay, here's your 400. And based on that, this is what you should be able to run a mile in, but you're not even close. So we need to work more on endurance with you um, mm -hmm. where it's opposite with some of the others. And, you know, you see that a lot in like marathon training for specifically is they spend so much time trying to develop a huge aerobic engine that they neglect everything else. And then eventually you just can't get any faster unless you work on strength and power and uh, efficiency and economy. You know, it's always aerobic, 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 but it's like you can only build that so far. That's true. There's a, there's some like glory to the grind mentality we have as endurance athletes where it's short recovery and it's, it's just grinding out repeats. It's grinding out things at sub-maximal capacity. And there's something to say about the run economy, the efficiency of like true speed work with true rest, maximal power output. It's surprising how well your fitness will pop a few weeks after you start incorporating some of those workouts with a lot of rest. Oh, for sure. It, it always works. And it's something that we don't do very much in this sport or any endurance athletes, especially as you get older. I'm 36, you're 40. If you don't stay on top of those really hard, sharp, fast efforts, that you actually lose it. I yeah. mean, I can tell you from experience. Those are the quickest. Yeah, I mean, those those will take a nosedive the quickest for sure. You can maintain endurance fairly easy. And if you look mm -hmm. at a lot of the like the like you know Canova or those big coaches and stuff like that, um, their main thing is that they try to you know once you have that aerobic engine, once you got to that point, you don't need to like continue like putting in the crazy volume necessarily what you do need to do at that point is start working more on economy and efficiency and maybe working more on mechanics and power output because once you've got that aerobic base in that engine 
I mean, you don't need to do a lot more. I mean, you can only get so far, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's not your endurance that's holding back your, your performances anymore. It's run economy, power output, speed over duration. Um, something I want to dive in with you, Dennis. Um, there's a, uh, there's a, a documentary out right now called the tiger King. Okay. I think you probably watched it now. You're not the tiger King, but I think you're the, the tire King. Yeah. You could probably make it a documentary by you. That's what I want to know. I want to know your, your tire workouts. I want to dive into the specifics. If there's one guy I think about is a, an advocate of the tire pole, I, your face pops right up, man. So can you tell us a little bit more? Would you mind give us some, giving us some specifics as to how you incorporate the tire into training? I know you pull it, but can you maybe dive in a little further? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously I tr- try to get the athletes, um, you know, it's, you have to find the right size tire, obviously. Like, you know, you'll, I'll tell an athlete, yeah, I get a tire. If I don't tell them specifically, like, you know, a standard car tire or maybe a small SUV tire, you know, all of a sudden I see them like they're trying to pull like, you know, a semi tire. They're like, I don't understand. I can only pull like 30 feet and I can't go any further. I'm like, yeah, no shit. The tire's like 500 pounds. So most of the tires, you know, are probably 40 pounds tops. Um, that's for some of my bigger athletes that are pulling a full size truck tire. Um, and then of course, terrain matters, you know, that, that, that's why I'm so big about the heart rate with it, heart rate with it, because if you pull let's say a tire on crushed gravel, it's a lot lower heart rate than if you pull it on a rubber track with the friction and resistance. Um, so terrain matters. And that's why I always try to incorporate it with heart rate. But one of my staple ones that I've been using for a long time, I started using it on myself was I would do, um, half mile, um, tire pull and followed by uh, a mile marathon pace. And then as I get closer to like, say my my marathon goal race, I would try to bring those mile repeats down to closer to 10 K pace. So it'd be, and I do like maybe eight rounds. So it would be not at 10 K pace, but like at marathon pace, but I would pull the 800 meters, do a mile um, run at whatever pace and just keep incorporating that. And I don't, you pull the tire before, right, Kurt? Like yeah, you, you, know, you notice how much difference and how much better you feel and how much your hips feel more opened up and everything just feels easier the minute you drop the tire and get back into your normal running. Of course. And then, of course, for recovery, it's it's great in the sense, like I said, that you're not taking all the pounding. Um, there's very little loading in terms of like uh, impact forces. So it allows a lot of athletes to recover. Um it's really good for when you're getting an athlete, it's a bigger athlete. It's someone that's obviously not a runner, not in shape and they're trying to get fit and they want an aerobic activity that will do just as good as running, but without all the beating and running, I'll just have them pull a tire, you know, maybe for starting out 20 minutes at a time, gradually working up to an hour or whatever. Yeah. I'm curious. I'm curious when you're, when you're doing this workout, for example, so I've done a similar workout where I drag the tire and go into what I call like a tempo or threshold effort run. Um, how hard are you pulling that tire? What is the goal of that half mile with the tire to work in, in what phase, what, what work rate? It's more, well, again, it's the kind of the compromised part, but it's not your heart rate's not, you're not, you're not really seeing a lot of stress. Well, not really hardly at all. Cause you're mostly in math zone. Um, as long as you have the right size tire and pulling on the right terrain, so the goal of that isn't to spike your heart rate on the tip. No, it's it's not it's not even uh, nothing to do with like the aerobic conditioning aspect at that point. It's more like the compromised running, but also working on strength and power to ground, um, efficiency and economy, and then going right into your race pace, whatever that is. Um, 
and as you notice and if you've done it before you see how much more efficient and how your form automatically just seems to change instantly the minute you drop the tire but it's more sort of break it up um, and allow people to put in more volume with more quality um, without all the pounding and beating. I don't want to get into too many details with this, but I have a personal curiosity. When I do that workout with the chest harness, um, you have to like fuck around with getting that harness off. So I have a strap with the D with the D uh, ring or whatever you call it. Yeah, it's, me uh, too. So if you got the Comcore, I just unhook it on my back and then I just go into my run with it on. Um, oh, so you leave it unhooked on your backside. Yeah, so I just un literally reach by my back, unclick it, and then do my run and then click it back up. Oh, you leave the vest on. Yeah. Last night, last night I was doing, I did, I was doing a uh, half mile pull, half mile runs. So I would just do like the half mile pull and then I would just unhook it and do a half mile run. Um, and just do five, you know, I did like five repeats of that. So I feel like an idiot because I would always take the vest completely off and I never thought of just simply unhooking the carabiner. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. It only took me like five seconds, but that's five seconds of annoyance, you know? So do you get to the point where you're jogging on those poles or are you always power hiking? I pretty much have always stayed just power hiking. I mean, there, there'd be a few times I'd jog here and there, but when, when you start running with, you have to shorten your stride so much, it almost counter uh, intuitive to trying to work on correcting your form and working on power to ground because you're just, it's, it's basically doing the opposite. It's not really, you know, you're, you're shortening your stride, you're getting choppy. You have to kind of get up on your toes. You burn your calves out pretty early and quick. Um, and I use a lot more for like posterior chain and like working the core and everything else rather than trying to just, get a hard workout out of it. You know, it's not necessary just to make a run harder. So these are long work bouts then in between your marathon runs. These half miles are going to take you 10 minutes. Yeah. I mean, I've gotten down to, so I've gotten pretty efficient with the tire. Uh, I can pull mine, keep my heart rate, you know, in the 130, 140 range and be about 14, 1430 mile pace pulling it. Okay. So but you're, you're still doing more work with the tire than you are on the runs on that kind of workout. Yeah. I thought, what do you mean as far as more work as far oh, oh as far as duration yeah yeah so that's why a lot of times i'll try to do equal work bouts like in my case like yesterday no because like i don't train like that no more with my heart condition but the um like my athletes i'll you'll normally have them do like a half mile tire pull equivalent time run at marathon pace gotcha. so about eight minutes for the half mile eight minutes at marathon pace gotcha that makes sense do you ever do tire sessions where you are doing the opposite end, where you're cracking the whip on the tire into a compromised run? So with my high school kids to work on overspeed a lot um, with resistance, I have them do like slight downhill tire sprints. So it's about, we have a hill by our school there. It's like 200 meters and it's maybe 2%, 3% gradient. And I'll have them start on the top of it and like basically run like hard effort, like, you know, mile pace effort down with that bit of resistance. So it doesn't jack their heart rate up, but it allows them to start working on over speed with resistance. And then they'll just hike it back up for recovery, you know, at a slow walk. Um, but very rarely do I really have anybody put the screws to it with the tire pulling running, because again, it's downhill. You can get away with it a lot more because you can open up your stride more. But when you're trying to run flat with it, even with like the dampener and stuff, the tire wants to bounce around a lot. And um, I think it just does a lot more. I, I don't think there's a lot of benefit to the running aspect of it, to be honest with you. 
what do you do threshold work or anything like that with the tire to prep for mountains or are you usually hiking usually just hiking what well no let me take that back so i actually will take it to a hill or i'll have yeah. my athlete take it to a hill so we have a really steep one here um locally to me so when i was training like some of the people that trained for world service mudder and for tahoe um they'd come down on the weekends and do some sessions with me but it's 400 meter hill and it's probably eight percent gradient it's pretty steep and they literally just you know do repeats like so drag it up you know which would be threshold heart rate then pull it back down easy recovery and then they would take the tire off and maybe do a hard run up hard run down repeat that keep repeat, repeating that for an hour two hours whatever the case you know mm -hmm. so you would recommend somebody like I was thinking of incorporating the tire from like, for like some really steady, I don't have a terribly heavy tire, but for like a steady half an hour, but run. And I mean, not like I'm really putting the hammer down, but I'm using the run motion. That's how my, my plan was to, uh, to simulate some uphill running that way. I wasn't planning to power hike. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Again, I'm not dropping the hammer. I'm just keeping yeah, the run. If, if you can find terrain, like a, a dirt road or like a, you know, crushed gravel type trail or something where it's fairly smooth and there's not a lot of change in, you know, undulation where the tire's not bouncing around and yanking you all around or whatever. Like I, I will have athletes do that. And I, I've done it myself quite a bit where, you know, it might be eight minute mile pace with a fairly small tire, um, but it'll put you up near threshold um, heart rate. Um, it's just going to be a slower pace because you're just not going to be able to maintain fast paces with the tire continuously for long durations, you know? Yeah, that's what I noticed with that is the terrain makes such a difference in how that tire actually feels. That's oh, almost the more important than what tire you're dragging. Yeah, for sure. And that's why I try to like, make sure everybody understands that, that, you know, if it, in terms of going from, you know, least difficult to the most difficult, it's pretty much probably crushed gravel is going to be the easiest. Then you're going to have asphalt. And then concrete's pretty tough. And then a rubber track is probably the toughest just because mm -hmm. of the, the friction. So how does your implementation then change with a sled, with the pushing versus pulling? What Do you do much sled pushing anymore? I do. Um, I have several of my own um, that I'll take up to the football field or whatever and use. But when the gyms are open and most of my athletes have access to them, um, I have them incorporate pretty heavy sled, like either really heavy um, with long recoveries or try to get in a lot of um, overall volume with short recoveries or they have the ability, you know, take it up to a track or, you know, a high school football field or something where you can push it for 100 meters at a time or, you know, with moderate weight. Um, but most of it's the, the, the really heavy stuff. So um, like on a heavy leg day or something like that, or even just, um, you know, taxing the legs quite a bit with the sled doing, say, 10 by 20 meter push at, you know, hard effort, heavy effort, a um, couple minute rest, and then, or go right into a run, you know, if they have it set up in their gym, you know, it depends on how their gym's set up. But a lot of times it'll be, you know, heavy sled push right into a run, heavy sled push right into another run or a row or something, you know, especially with the high rock stuff. When high rocks came out, it was, it finally like allowed me, like it gave me reason, like athletes wanted to push the sled, you know, normally like, mm -hmm. well, I don't know if I, I'd rather just go run or I'd rather just do this. You know, so now having high rocks and DECA supports my, uh, <laughs> you know, passion with the sleds, I guess, even more. Right. That makes sense. When you um, when you construct a workout, I would say one of your most visible athletes is Alyssa Hawley. And she's also one of your best athletes at plugging what you do. She sings your praises a lot. Alyssa does. Because um, I know you've helped her a lot with training through injury and kind of keeping her workout spicy. 
I want to know what, so she posts a lot of her workouts on Instagram and gives you her shout outs and they're always different. I want to know what's the method to your madness. You're putting together some complex and some simple workouts. What is your thought process when you design a workout and maybe give us an example of one of those. So obviously, I mean, it's what, I mean, what are you trying to, you know, uh, stimulate or simulate either, either one. Um, but from a physiological standpoint, I mean, you, you know, you're trying to maybe work on your aerobic threshold or anaerobic or lactic threshold, whatever it is. So the workouts will always be designed with that in mind, you know, whatever that component is. And then I try to also incorporate the workouts that's going to best simulate a race scenario, you know, so for someone like Alyssa, who, you know, was gearing up to do nothing but stadium, um, high rocks and Deca, then it's pretty much just nothing but, uh, compromised running and short duration intervals in between. Whereas OCR, you might have a mile or so run in between where you're not going to see that at all. And, um, those types of events. So it's just event specific. A lot of times, um, like I said, the other day, uh, one of the workouts she was doing was she would do 400 meter run and then do like 15 devil presses and then 15 like burpee broad jumps and then do another 400 meter, things like that. Um, and where I usually try to design it. So it puts them in that same heart rate effort, like to be a race pace type effort, how it feels physically, but also mentally and just, working on that transition, get in and out of, uh, you know, from exercise to running, to exercise to running or obstacle to running. Um, I mean, it's, it's cut and dry. It's pretty simple when you're training just runners, but with OCR, there's so many more elements that you have to take into account. And again, you also have to work around what the athlete has available for not just equipment, but terrain. You know, if they don't live in the mountains, what can you do to get them prepared for the mountains the best of their ability, at least, you know, they'll never probably get as prepared as they would if they lived in the mountains. But if you can get them 80% of there, you know, then that's good. You know? Yeah. There's something to, uh, there's something to say about, uh, we talk about transitions in and out of obstacles in and out of workout stations. I think that's where most races are made or lost. And that's where, when I took my first big jump in OCR, I could always get back up to my maximal race pace. It was more, how long did it take me after an obstacle to do it? And the biggest thing was getting comfortable. We talked about trusting your fitness. And even though after you come off of an obstacle or a strength session, you're going to feel like you're going to blow up, but you have to trust your fitness enough to know that you're going to actually end up coming back down and settling in again. So it's okay to push that pace. And I think the only way to get comfortable becoming efficient with those transitions is to work them constantly, constantly hit them, constantly hit them. Well, and also too, I think like some athletes, for instance, the running is their recovery. They're a good enough runner that they can actually kind of recover on the run. When I first got into OCR, that's how it was for me. Like I could run with like Megita and Bracken and those guys, even then when I first started until we hit an obstacle and then they would crush me at it. And then I'm not going to run them back down at that point. You know, I wasn't that much, you know, good runner to after they put 200 meters on me, 300 meters on me. I mean, what are you going to do? You know, the only thing you could do is hope they'd fail something and that hardly happens anymore. Mm-hmm. Bracken, you had uh, mentioned something to me the first time you'd watched me race. And you said, you said, I knew that you had real potential when I saw how you went into and came off an obstacle. I don't remember what it was, a Hercoist or something. You're like, I saw you do that. And that's the first time I thought, hey, this guy could actually be a contender. And that's what I think separates the pretenders and the contenders is that time in and out of things. 
uh, obstacles, how how well their body can handle that. Do you remember that, Bracken? I do I remember what it was. Uh, it was everything. It was rig walls and uh, hercoist and uh, some carries. I, I feel like everyone has a bell curve coming in and out of an obstacle. And the vast majority of people, especially earlier in their career, the bell curve starts with slow running coming out of the obstacle. Then they ramp back up to their best pace running after a while when they recover. And then they slow back down and maybe even walk into an obstacle. And so there's that in and out, ramp up, ramp down. And the better you get and the closer you get to the top of the sport, there's almost the inverse where people accelerate into the obstacle at their highest pace, accelerate out of the obstacle at the highest pace, and then settle back down into race pace and then accelerate back into the next one. So it's the reverse bell curve where everything's fast in, fast out, and then settle back down to marathon pace rather than walk in, walk out climb up to marathon pace, walk back in. And you right off the bat had the ability where you were dropping off the ground and running with purpose. Whereas a lot of the other guys in that race were dropping off onto the ground and then getting their recovery going. Yeah. I mean, you see that yeah. a lot. I mean, like obviously like the Albans or Atkins, I mean, they come into the obstacle so fast. Like they even, like you said, accelerate coming in. Um, mm. you know, they may have went from marathon pace to all of a sudden 10 K pace coming into the obstacle get through that in 10 seconds or less and then right back, you know, into it again, coming out hard. And then, like you said, settle back down. And that's a gut check for a lot of people that aren't willing to do that. And it's, you have to have done it enough in training to know that, okay, the next two minutes are going to suck, but then I'll settle back into a marathon pace and my heart rate will come down. I'll recover a bit, but it's being too scared to do that. And like being nervous that you're going to blow up. That's why you see like Kimson, he just doesn't give a shit. He blows up, he blows up, and he'll, you know, take his uh, lumps. But when he's on, he's on, you know. Yeah. But I feel like the only way to train for that, or the only way to be prepared to race that way is to train the transitions and train them hard and train them often. Because I was training hard when I first got into the sport, and my transitions weren't nearly as good because I wasn't training them like I should. So it's something you have to practice because you have to earn that right to, to surge after an obstacle and not blow up. Because if you don't practice it, you will blow up still. Well, it's, I mean, even if you look at, like, like I said, you know, going back to the marathoning thing, most recreational marathoners, even if they're trying to be good and get better and, you know, break some milestones like the three hours or something like that, it's, they do all their long runs at this slower, so much slower pace than their goal pace. And then they, you know, they go, oh, I was doing great up to like mile 12 or 16. And then I fell apart. And it's like, because you did all your training runs at marathon pace only maybe up to that point. Like, you need to like start extending that and spinning like 18 to 20 miles with a good portion of it at marathon pace or slightly faster, because not only from a physiological standpoint, I mean, metabolically speaking and everything, you have to learn how to, your body can basically be efficient, burn fuel and how uh, economical it's going to be at that effort. If you don't ever touch on that enough for the same amount of duration and time you plan to do it in a race, you're just never going to be able to do it in a race. Like people have this mindset they just show up and race and sprinkle fairy dust on their shoes and all of a sudden they'll be fast, you know? Yeah, there's something unique to running in the way it is prepared for that does not exist in other sports. Every other sport works on their skills. They work on the supplemental activities, but at the end of the day, it is all funneled towards preparing for the test of the competition. Where in running, we oftentimes get caught up in well, I have to raise my VO2 max, or I have to lower my threshold pace, or I have to hit this volume, forgetting that that's not the overriding question. 
the overriding question is what is my race demand and how good can I get at those demands? And the other pieces will arise along the way. And yeah, you can focus on them, but why do you think it is that runners are backwards? Not, not everyone, I'm not calling out everyone, but why oftentimes are we backwards in how we approach our competition? Well, I think the truth of it is, I mean, in terms of like a lot of, you talking about runners that transition into OCR or just runners in, in, general? in general running, what even like road runners and marathoners, like if you're training for a 10 K or a marathon, why do we see so many people not doing specific workouts to mirror their test that they're preparing for? I honestly don't know. I, somewhere along the way, I think it just, everything is always gravitated towards just that volume, 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 and that you'll get faster by just surely putting in volume. And it's true to a degree, but then like, if you look at the top, like, uh, marathoners or 10k runners they usually are always like come from a, a camp a group where a lot of times a moderate run turns into a, a workout whether they intend it to or not you know um even with my high school kids i mean once i get one or two good kids that are doing well it pulls all the rest of them up because now all of a sudden they're having to learn to almost race even in training sometimes um and i just don't think especially most runners I don't think are disciplined enough to go and put themselves in that area of pain and discomfort regularly enough. You know, it just, it's hard to do, you know, you have to be really, really focused. And, um, you also have to be willing to like hammer it in the race. I mean, Hunter mentioned it the other day that, you know, basically the reason he could beat Hobie was cause he wasn't a pussy and it's, you know, it's funny, but it's true. Um, he's, outran his fitness many times and you know one where he shouldn't have probably been in the top 10 sometimes just because he's too stubborn and you know has too much ego to quit yeah there's a there's that whole unsaid component about the mental toughness that true compromised run workouts build um that just regular running we will call it doesn't um, and, and OCR and distance running, a lot of us are lone wolves out here. We train all by ourselves. We don't have somebody's shoulder to shoulder very often to really push us or vice versa. So we're stuck there on our own trying to work on our mental toughness game. And I would say a good way to force feed yourself that aspect of training is to throw in those high intensity compromised run workouts. Yeah. Or do it like when, when I uh, lived in Virginia, a lot of times for me, it was, I, I had training partners, but it was doing stuff that I knew I'd get my ass kicked in um, and be fine with it. Like you know, I'd go out with guys that were 15, 20 minutes faster than me in the marathon. They would be doing a 20 mile long run and I would go, I'm just going to run with you guys for as long as I can. And it may only be eight miles, you know, maybe 10, whatever. But I would just do that just to, to basically get, you know, toughen myself up to get ready for that in the race. And, um, you know, I swallowed my pride and had to be like, okay, you guys are better than me, but in order to get better, I need to train with you guys and, you know, do what I can. I mean, you yeah. guys ran in college, you know, I mean, um, you have a good team, you have a good group that's trained together all the time. You just, you have no choice but to get faster. Either you get faster, you fall off the back and, you know, that's pretty much it. I always equate it to shooting in basketball. That anyone who's ever played basketball knows the guys that are great gym shooters, but they can't shoot under duress. Oh, no. It's the same thing with running. Like if you can't run under duress, you can't race. It doesn't matter if you can hit a long run. It doesn't matter if you can hit great splits and intervals with good rest. If you can't under duress in a race, run hard in a bad place for a long time. It's the same as being a great corner shooter in the gym who can own, who can't even shoot a shot if you're contested. 
Like if you if you're if you're not open, if you have to pass up the shot, you're not a shooter. No. And if you can't race under duress, you're not a racer. Well, like it's funny you brought up the basketball thing, but my coach in high school was big about that. Like he would have us do like sprints and then practice free throws or do sprints and then practice our, you know, jump shots. Or in the paint, he would have like those pads that you use for football and we'd go up for rebound and he'd freaking pelt us with this or, you know, whatever. And it was to just get you ready for that game experience. You know, um, we had a guy that was, you know, six foot 10 center in high school. I mean, dude was a monster, but he was so soft and weak. So like the coach just started literally like he'd go up for rebound and he'd just freaking way lame and he, it made him tougher, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just same thing in OCR or any other sport. You got to be willing to go through um, race tape, race type scenarios regularly in training to get there. Well, and with the same mindset of I'm not going to take this shot because it I might miss it or it might get blocked or it might not be a smart shot. Like you will never score as much as if you can shoot contested shots with confidence. The same thing happens in a race. If you don't accelerate in and out of an obstacle because you're afraid of blowing up. You never access the next level of racing, which is gaining an energy boost by gapping someone on something like that. And so, yeah, maybe your heart rate's now six, seven beats higher, but your adrenaline's coursing a little bit more. And now you've gapped someone and now you made up ground on someone. And every time you come in and out of something, there's the gas tank dagger, but then there's the adrenaline boost that comes with it. And some people never get an adrenaline boost throughout an entire race because you're always trying to mitigate the damage rather than being the hammer. Well, I mean, I have a couple athletes, you know, and they're good athletes and they, you know, will get on the podiums from time to time, you know, um, at races and stuff and OCR, but they're still super like timid. It's like they would rather run conservative and get top five maybe than just go for it and see what happens. And maybe you blow up a bit, but you still stumble into second or third, you know? Um, and you just have to be willing to not care. Like, you know, and I understand if maybe there's a lot of money on the line or something, but for most of these athletes, like, what's a top 10? I mean, it's, it's nice, I guess, to put on paper, but it, sometimes you just need to know what it feels like to blow up. And I actually encourage some of my runners to do that. Jump in races that may not matter, like find a local race where it's not a big deal or even get away from your – like if you're an OCR strictly racer, jump in a half marathon and go out with the top, you know, runners for as long as you can and see what happens. And just you blow up and you walk off the course or well. Like no big deal. I think this is, I think this is an important topic to actually talk about right now because Bracken and I, I don't know if this was a side conversation we had Bracken or if we talked about this on the podcast, but talking about running the risk of kind of getting soft here with this like non-racing season ahead right now, because when you don't expose yourself to that sort of distress or feeling uh, some people I think are going to get slapped in the face once we return to racing because they're not putting themselves in the hurt locker. They're not putting themselves into that race mindset. And I think the two ways to do that right now is one, we've talked about this for sure on the podcast is to time trial and just say, Hey, I'm going to hold myself to the fire and do it. And the other way to do it, if there's any other reason, uh, than this, it would simply be to do some high end painful compromise or OCR run workouts to just keep your mind sharp and don't forget what that feels like. So like not leaving that out of your training program right now, simply because the slap to the face racing is going to have, is going to cause you in the future could be pretty bad. So like, I think just keeping the mental side of things and knowing that feeling and pain is important in this phase. Cause we could be months before yeah. we feel that in a race. 
Hunter talked about it perfectly. He said, I can't stand when people say, wait for six months from now. I'm going to be so good, but I'll take my lumps until then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that can work. But there's a real danger of if you keep taking fifth through 10th or 10th through 15th, suddenly that becomes your reality and that's your mindset. Or if you go out saying like the Kempton route, I'm the best guy here. I'm going to win, go top three or die. Well, each time he might fade back to eighth or 10th, but in his mind, he never stopped being the first place guy. He just didn't finish his race. Whereas some of the guys who are like, I'm not in shape to win. So I'll go out and take fifth until I'm in shape to win. Now they became a fifth place person in their mind. And that that's, that slide is subtle, but once it takes hold on you, that is you now. And you can lose all your racing edge. It can take years to build up your racing edge and you can lose it in a week or two. Well, and you can see that like when High Rocks came out, it was a perfect example where you know, some of my athletes for sure, like they may not be as competitive in the OCR world, but all of a sudden they were beating these top girls, you know, like Alyssa almost beat Faye, you know, at High Rock Chicago and stuff. And, um, you know, Callie did well, Morgan and stuff. And they, because they didn't know any better, you know what I mean? They didn't, mm -hmm. they didn't look at the athlete and go, oh, I shouldn't be next to this athlete because they didn't, they didn't have anything to compare it to. Whereas, like you said, you, know, you do the OCR scene enough, especially like, you know, the big national series and stuff like that. You're like, well, you know, I've never gotten better than eighth before, so I'm going to stay next to this person and that person. As long as I'm close to them, I know I'm running my own race, and it's fine. Mm -hmm. I'm guilty of that. Rather than just going for it. Yeah, I'm, I'm guilty of that. For the age group athlete or someone who just wants to do their best overall time, yeah, there's nothing wrong with going after that. But if you have a specific goal, like if you need to do something you've never accomplished before, you have to be willing to risk it. How often, if you look at the podium of an age group or the elite podium, does somebody come from outside the top five into the top three? It so rarely happens anymore. Mm -hmm. Like if you're not in view in mile one, you're not in view at mile 10. And that's that used to be you could slow play a race, people would fail stuff. It just doesn't happen. Even the guys who slow play it are sitting in fifth, 10 meters behind third. They're not sitting a quarter mile behind anymore. You just, it doesn't happen. Well, that's the thing. Like if you, even if you look at the top athletes, like obviously Atkins doesn't have too many weaknesses or anything, but him and Lindsay, I would always feel like if, if, if someone was to really put the screws to them early, and be willing to like try to you know blow their self up in order to blow them up, it it could probably work. You know, what I mean, in some cases because um, again, like you know, you don't see them getting they don't get faster as the race goes on. They just stay steady, and everybody else falls off. But everybody you know is scared and like, oh, I shouldn't be in front of Lindsay. I shouldn't be in front of Ryan. You know, why not just go for it at least once or twice and see what happens? I mean, maybe you blow up and you finish thirtieth, but at least you'll know at that point because. Imagine if you did win or you get on the podium when you've never been on the podium, how much of an ego boost that can be or like, you know, just huge adrenaline rush for you for the rest of the season or the rest of your career. When Ryan and Lindsay lose, it's never when they're in contention and someone outruns them at the end. No. Ryan almost never has someone pull away from him. Lindsay almost never does. I mean, West Virginia last year, her and Nicole stride for stride, you know, all the way through and then she finds the way to get ahead. Atkins, longer and longer in Florida, he finds a way to finish it. He's closing. They're always going to close. The times they lose is when they're gapped. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And not most people can't gap them, but you got to know that if they're next to me and we're halfway through, I'm done. Yeah. 
I have to be, there has to be daylight. And the only way to get daylight is to run like a Kempson, run like a VJ, you know, run like a hunter. You got to go out there and say, or even like, you know, like a Killian, I'm going to hurt me to hurt you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was going to say not to tangent just slightly from this, but since we're on like the staying mentally sharp, you know, train right now and ready to hurt, I have four athletes that uh, have chosen to run the ultra virus race on Saturday um, Mappy Davis's ultra virus race. And they approached me with it. And at first I said, that's a, it's a silly idea. It doesn't, I don't think it's smart. I don't think it serves a purpose, but I sat on it and I thought about what is this really going to do for you? And I, and, and the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know what, this is going to put you out of your comfort zone. Bracken last week talked about, I just need to go out and suffer to work on my mental game once in a while. And it may not be the smartest move, but I'll tell you what, it's going to help people find a, a suffer place, get comfortable being uncomfortable. And I gave all four of them the green light after I thought about it based on the the one principle that what are we, how are we going to hold our feet to the candle right now? And how are we going to keep ourselves mentally checked in? And if that's the way it has to happen, that's the way it has to happen. But I just think, I think stressing the, the mentally engaged side of this right now is important. So I'm glad we're touching on it. Yeah. I mean, I have a few athletes that like we're signing up for that too. And I basically have, are having them treat it kind of like a workout too. So like, one example, mm -hmm. like, you know, one just to, is just going to do it for like a long effort. Um, going to probably do like five mile run, two or three mile tire pull, and then do that twice through, maybe get 20 miles and be done. You know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. And then some are just treating it as a, you know, a long day on their feet, you know, where they might walk a mile, run a mile, walk a mile, run a mile until they get done with it. You yeah. know? Well, um, you see people signing up for something like this, which, or you see people chasing FKTs on Strava right now. Um, those are two other ways to do it. Are the, are the, the best ways to do it is to put yourself into that position in workouts like you guys are talking about. Well, and it's hard because I mean, right now there's no racing and most athletes, they have that competitive nature and you have to at least keep that fire stoked a bit during something like this or else you just lose it. You know what I mean? Like, um, you have to stay sharp to some degree. Um, it's time to take maybe some recovery and a little bit of downtime too, but not completely back away from it and just sit around and not do anything. Um, you definitely want to keep that competitive edge going, I think. At the end of the day, racing is racing, and I don't think we're any different than animals. No. And they keep stallions chomping at the bit. They have to be ready to just go out there, bite the person in the crown next to them, and kick your trainer out of the way to let me through this gate. Yeah. And this is a really tough time to keep that mentality going. And so, Kirk, Dennis, you're right. Whatever you have to do to keep that mentality going. You can even be in a building period where you're spacing out your intensity and you're not trying to get sharp, but mentally, I don't think I don't think we are in a smart place if we back away from those those dangerous mental efforts from time to time. It's like like I said, I've been incorporating the true speed work now the last couple of weeks with my athletes because most of them have never really done it. And now's the time where it really won't affect them much in terms of like, you know, there's no races on the immediate future. So it's like it's kind of lit a spark to them because a lot of them are like, wow, like either one, I didn't realize how like shitty I am at real speed work, or I actually have some potential here. Maybe I want to try to like, I've had a few reach out to me and say, Hey, if I can get in like some outdoor track meets this summer, like you think I can do like 800 meters or 400 meters? I'm like, sure, of course. You know, I mean, something that they've never even done before in their life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Bracken, is there anything, any questions you had for him that we haven't asked? I think the specifics of his tire setup. So like personally, I put an eye bolt at the top of my tire. I have, you know, the carabiners on either end. I have a, a vest I use, but I think that anyone who listens to this 
has got to be intrigued by tire training. And so Dennis, walk them through what is your starting from scratch to getting to a workout process? Uh, so essentially picking the tire, like I said, um, which, you know, for most people, like the average size woman or whatever, I would say just a typical car tire, um, you know, whatever that might be, a Honda Civic or whatever. And then obviously a bigger, stronger athlete would go with a little bit bigger tire. Um, I normally try to have my athlete get like two or three different sizes if they can, just for different workouts. Then once you get that set up, um, take an eye bolt, you know, hardware store, get an eye bolt. Um, I don't put it through the top, but you put it through the, like if you lay the tire flat on its uh, side, you would put it right through the direct center of the tread. You know what I mean? Um, and then obviously you have your um, strap. So the calm core comes with the nine foot strap. It has a, uh, the carabiner on each end, but then I put another uh, one foot section of um, bungee between the eye bolt on the tire and the D ring because um, it keeps it from basically it's a dampener. So it keeps the tire from bouncing too much. And you can even use like a foot of chain, a length of chain, because what it does is it keeps from pulling you back every time. Like if you're jerky and all that, it just kind of makes it for an unpleasant workout. But the care, I mean, the Bungee or the chain will help take care of that to the point where it almost like prevents it from happening. And then from there, I usually have athletes just starting to use it to, for warm ups. You know, maybe I'll have them do um, 15 minute tire pull continuous before they do their run and then finish with a 15 minute tire pull cool down and then eventually start working them into intervals with it. Um, time duration ones, you know, because I do a lot of group coaching. So I may have 50 people in one group OCR group. And so instead of doing it by distance, because obviously you have different skill levels, it'll be eight minutes tire pull in this heart rate zone, eight minutes run at marathon pace or something, you know, along the lines of that. And then again, picking the terrain is very important. Um, You know, the different terrain is going to make the resistance different. That's going to basically show different heart rate zones. So that in itself, once you start getting enough experience with it and you start doing it enough, you can determine different heart rate zones based on terrain. So you could maybe turn a tire pull into a threshold run or effort by just changing terrain alone, by taking it to a rubber track, it may jack your heart rate up 15, 20 beats higher than if you were doing it on crushed gravel. So you could do the same walking with it and it could be two different uh, workouts technically. Okay. Dennis, it's, it's one thing to uh, explain what it looks like. It's another thing to see it. Do you have a, a photo you could, you could share with us that way when we make your post on uh, on Instagram, we can tag a uh, tire photo with it as like a slide. Yeah. Do you have a photo you could share Actually, that way? I, people have can a video set, I have a video too how to set it up, but yeah, I, I have a photo, I believe. I think that'd be super important to share with people because um, I'm guessing some people aren't going to connect all the dots yeah, there. So. Sure. And I have a video of setting it up and um, some photos of it and stuff. So. And then where, where do you want to send people to get this vest? I went to you when it was time for me to get a vest, give them the exact name of the vest and where to get it. So the one I use is the, it's Comcore Pro. So it's C-O-M-C-O-R. And then their pro model, I think it's, you can get it for like $45 on their website. Um, Some people order them from Amazon because they're a little cheaper, but then it's like a third party or something and it takes longer for delivery. It seems like, whereas if you order directly from them, you tend to get it a lot faster. Uh, but the pro one is it's just it's a lot heavier built so you don't necessarily need the heavy duty one for the, just the tire but i also use it to pull my sled and stuff too so if you're going to spend the money you might as well spend another 15 bucks and get the heavier duty one because it's got d-rings on the sides and the front and the back um and it's just more structurally uh, built more solid um so you can pull heavier loads um i 
did a truck pull the other day with mine. So, <laughs> yeah, you tried to do a truck pull the other day. Yeah, I got a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I uh, also for people, um, I know there's a chain called Discount Tire. At least they're where I live. They might be nationwide. Um, you can go to any like auto or tire place. I get and they have all their used tires. You can pick up for two bucks. Oh yeah. So I went to my local Discount Tire. I picked out a few of them for different applications and it cost me like six bucks for three tires and they're happy to get rid of them. So you just literally go to your local tire shop and they, most of them will just probably give them to you because they just have to pay to discard them anyways. Yeah. So uh, that's where I pick up tires. Don't be like getting yourself a new set of wheels for your car just so you can rip one off to pull a tire. Yeah, no, the, um, exactly. So like I get them for my high school kids at the start of the season each year, you know, seven or eight of them, different tires. And I just go and get them free from um, Town Fair Tire down the street here. And they happy to give them to me. But even then, like yesterday, I found one um, someone threw on the side road. It's a little small one, like uh, for like a wheelbarrow. But I'm going to use it for my daughter so she can start pulling it. Uh, nice. Start them young. So she like, well, when we go to track and I'm pulling mine, she always like pretends like she's trying to pull it. Um, but obviously, it's too big. So I told her I'd make her one. And then for heart rate, what devices do you like using for that? What do you trust? I trust Polar the most. Um, Garmin can be pretty good, but either way, I think it needs to be either the arm strap, like around the bicep or the chest. Um, the wrist technology, I just, it, it's so, I haven't seen any. Not there. It's just not, not there. Not there. Um, it's just so inaccurate. It's hard to really know if you're even close, you know. Um, you know, I see, I've had athletes being doing easy runs and then showing 180 beats a minute or they're doing a hard run and it's showing 125, you know? So it's just not very accurate. So I use a Polar, um, like H10, like it's, I think their newer model. Um, and it's good because it'll sync up with most treadmill equipment stuff, like most Nordic track and everything all uses Polar. And then you can also sync it with like Polar Beat on your phone or anything like that if you don't want to buy the watch itself. Um, so you can get just a strap for 60, 70 bucks and then, um, you know, sync it with your phone. Um, but if you also want to get the actual watch itself, that's, you know, that's fine too. But, um, just a polar strap is what I normally use. Awesome. They, they're specific, you know, that's what they specifically do, you know, heart rate stuff. And they were some of the first ones to come out and they've been doing it a long time. So I just, I just trust this stuff a lot better than most other uh, brands. Brad, can you turn me on to the Wahoo ticker fits, that arm strap? Um, I have not found a more comfortable and it, uh, strap, and it's as accurate as any chest strap. I've used Polar. That Wahoo ticker fit has been a game changer for yeah. me. That's the bicep one? Yeah, I put it on my forearm because my biceps are so big, yeah. but you get it, yeah. Polar has, I think, the Polar OH1 or OX1. Um, they, they have an arm version as well. I My torso is shaped. No strap will stay up on my chest. I, if I'm running, I'm cycling, I can keep it on. It just will not stay up through an entire run workout for me. And so I have to do the arm base. Although the other day I took one of my sister's sports bras and I put it on to see if that would work. And it worked great. That's why that's, that's the reason you put it on. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If, if you feel good, you run good. Yeah, exactly. It's Hunter's mentality too. Right? <laughs> I have some really nice chest straps and I'm thinking about making like just a mini little like elastic strap to go up over my shoulder <laughs> to keep it up. But I hate not being able to use them, but otherwise, yeah, I'm restricted to the armband. And I found that they are, I would say 99% as accurate as the chest strap in the wrist. I would put at like 65 or 70% oh, yeah. as the wrist. I, I mean, I just don't even trust them at all. So I, if an athlete has it, I don't even look at the data hardly because it's just, yeah. 
almost useless. We have clear skin and we don't have a ton of arm hair, but if you have any pigment in your skin, like it struggles. If you have arm hair, it struggles. If you have tattoos, it struggles. It's just, it's not there yet. Well, yeah. And if you're doing pull workouts, if you're doing dynamic stuff, then that watch is moving around on your wrist and it's a bunch of crap. One note I wanted to say about like the arm strap versus the chest strap. The one thing you'll notice, and I've, I've, I put both on at the same time, you have about a second delay, second to three second delay from the arm strap to the chest. The chest strap is real time. That armband gives me like a delayed reading for whatever reason. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. It's just a couple seconds behind for what it's worth. Yeah, the chest strap is measuring electrical activity and the arm strap has to wait till the blood gets to your arm. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a hair behind you. Um, Dennis, where, uh, where can people seek you out, find you? Um, what do you got out there on social media? Um, Facebook, obviously the endurance project athletes group. Um, I have a public one and then a private one, obviously for just members of the group. And then, um, the endurance project on Instagram, pretty much. You have a coaching website. I do DW endurance project. Um, but I don't really use it much anymore. Um, found websites, the, you know, traditional websites just doesn't seem to do as well as social media anymore. And it's a lot of upkeep and a lot of like, uh, maintenance and effort. Uh, I am working with a guy right now. We might be building a new platform so I can uh, put out more like video content and things like that. But otherwise social media is kind of where it's at now. Instagram and stuff. Everybody, that's what most people follow and, you know, use. You're taking on new clients at this time. Yeah, I'm always taking clients. I mean, I've got like uh, about 120 right now, I think. Um, but yeah, I'm always taking clients. Uh, most of my clients are, you know, I'd say about 100 of those of the 120 are all group athletes. And then I have, you know, probably around 20, they're individual um, clients. Nice. I, and the aspect, just like we were talking about earlier, like, you know, now all the coaches are probably panicking, like what's going to happen is, you know, we kind of come out of this and be back to normal. But that's kind of why I've always had that like group option as well it's like lower cost obviously um and it's not quite individualized but it seems people are more willing to pay for that in times of crisis or you know whatever because it's a cheaper amount um, but they still get quality training quality efforts and some of them will jump up to individual or they'll just stick with the group you know i've got some people that's been doing it for five years now dennis anything we didn't ask you that you want to chat about not off the top of my head okay that means we were thorough then that's good been putting together a good podcast. Everybody likes it. So, uh, you know, it's one of the few I listen to um, that says anything. I appreciate that. Yeah. No, what, I, I like the fact there's finally some like a, a podcast where it's actually talks about training and actual the ins and outs of training rather than just the same old, you know, what does Hunter eat for breakfast and what does Ryan eat for dinner? And, you know, I guess that has its place, but it's kind of run its course. So you guys are putting out good content. Um, you guys are both pretty knowledgeable and then, bringing on other knowledgeable people and athletes and coaches help a lot, you know, so. All right, man. Well, thanks for joining us today. All right, guys. Appreciate it.